As we turn our attention to Daniel 9, you need to note that this chapter contains one of the most famous and significant prophecies in all of the scriptures. In fact, what is traditionally known as the 70 weeks prophecy is of such importance that it provides for us a general skeleton by which most of the prophecy concerning Israel and Jesus is understood. That said, what most fail to mention in their commentary of the 70 weeks prophecy is that it was given to Daniel not in a vacuum. As we're going to see this morning, this incredible revelation came to Daniel in conjuncture with a Bible study and in response to an incredible prayer. Let's dive right into the text. Daniel 9, beginning with verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of, and you can pronounce his name however you'd like, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years and the desolations of Jerusalem. As we've seen in the prophecies recorded both in chapter 7 and 8, Daniel begins by providing us a specific time frame. He tells us the things he's about to record took place in the first year of Darius the Mede. Chronologically, this would place us somewhere between Daniel chapter 5 and chapter 6. The Chaldean king Belshazzar's violent delights have met a violent end. Babylon now finds herself under the control of Darius and the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel, who is an old man, likely in his 80s by this point, has now been called back into the service of this new king. In all likelihood, because Daniel 9 comes in the first year of Darius' rule, the events recorded in chapter 6, where the prophet finds himself being cast into a den of lions, has not yet come to fruition. Aside from providing us a time frame for this prophecy, this chapter, Daniel also gives us some context for what he was doing prior to receiving this prophetic revelation. (laughs) He was having a Bible study specifically in the book of Jeremiah. Now, before we dive into what he learns in his Bible study, I should explain who Jeremiah was and how Daniel likely came into the possession of not just Jeremiah, but these books for years leading up to their Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah had been raised up by the Lord and commissioned with the task of warning the people of God of God's impending judgment. Sadly for Jeremiah, over the course of his 40-year preaching ministry, not one single person ever listened to him. In time, Jeremiah would see Nebuchadnezzar take back to Babylon a contingency of young Jewish men, the best and the brightest, to serve in his courts. This would include Daniel. Jeremiah then had a front row seat when the Babylonians came back a second time, taking captive the royal family robbing the temple of its treasure and artifacts, forcing another 10,000 Hebrews into exile. As I've noted before, this second group would include the eccentric prophet Ezekiel. Ten years later, 
Jeremiah would find himself standing outside the holy city weeping as Nebuchadnezzar returned one final time to utterly destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and remove all of the people from the land. And as the temple and city burned, knowing this had been the judgment of God, he had been predicting because of their hardened hearts, the prophet Jeremiah would pen in this moment the book of Lamentations. It's worth noting that when this final siege occurs in the year 587 B.C., Daniel has already been living in Babylon for 18 years. And in the process of time, he's gained quite a significant amount of influence and power. Fifteen years before Jerusalem was destroyed, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the succession of world empires and in turn was promoted ruler over the whole province of Babylon, we're told in Daniel 2, as well as made the chief administrator over all of the wise men. You know, as a young man growing up in Judea, there is no question, no doubt, certain, that Daniel knew of Jeremiah. I mean, who didn't? And while he had likely written him off as being crazy, just like everyone else, you can imagine as Daniel, this teenager, makes the long walk across the desert From Judea to Babylon, the words of Jeremiah the prophet rang loudly in his ears, striking a deep chord within his soul. Though we have no historical record of these two men, Daniel and Jeremiah, ever meeting in person, there is strong evidence that Daniel not only came to appreciate Jeremiah, it's why he's reading his scroll, but would actually intervene on Jeremiah's behalf. Case in point, According to Jeremiah 39, during the final siege of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar gives the weirdest order. It's recorded that he gave orders to the captain of the guard to find and protect during the siege, Jeremiah. I believe this was likely via the intercession of his friend Daniel. In the end, Jeremiah would find himself, after all of these things, being taken to Egypt against his will. Tradition says he ends up being stoned to death by his brethren. And yet, at some point before that happens, I believe, can't prove it, it's just a conviction, that Daniel uses his position in Babylon, in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. He uses his clout to leave Babylon in order to procure from Jeremiah his writings, along with other books or holy texts. This would have included the law of Moses. Side note, Daniel will refer to the law of Moses multiple times in this chapter. I'm of the opinion that it likely included the books of history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and at least a large portion of 2 Kings. It would have included these books, books of poetry. Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all written way before this. Additionally, The books would have included relevant prophets who had come before the diaspora. Jonah, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. Again, I can't prove this theory. But you know the timing really does line up with one of the great mysteries of Daniel's story. Why was Daniel absent 
from the events recorded in chapter 3. And if you don't recall, the events of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he returns from this final siege of Jerusalem. He's put to bed rebellions. And as a test of loyalty and an ego trip, he, he, he puts this great image of gold declaring everyone has to worship it. Daniel's three friends, his three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they take a stand. They refuse to worship. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. Jesus appears. It's always been a mystery. Why is Daniel not included in chapter 3? I think he wasn't in Babylon. Yeah, I believe that the preservation of God's Word, the Old Testament, during the Jewish exile can and should be attributed directly to the prophet Daniel. Now, pertaining to the motivation for Daniel's dive into Scripture, don't forget the situation. Israel has experienced the judgment of God on account of their sin and wickedness. Daniel knows that their judgment had been warranted, justified. And yet it was shocking nonetheless. Babylon had been God's tool. But now God had judged Babylon using the Medes and the Persians. In accordance with Isaiah's prophecies recorded many years earlier, Daniel knew the rise of this Persian King Cyrus was not a coincidence. At some point, Daniel knew that Cyrus would allow, according to the prophecies of Isaiah, he would allow the Jews to return to their homeland. You see, the pressing question on Daniel's heart, what drives him into the Scriptures, what's on his heart, what's on his mind, was when this would happen. Now, regardless as to how Daniel came to possess these books, including Jeremiah, chapter 9 is explicit that as Daniel is working his way through these writings, he comes to an amazing revelation. God had determined that the exile of the Hebrews would last for a minimum of 70 years. Now, there are two places this reality became evident to Daniel. First, in Jeremiah 25, beginning with verse 11, Daniel would have read that the Lord said, this whole land shall be a desolation, speaking of Israel, and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. And from Daniel's vantage point, as he's reading through this and he gets to this prophecy, this had been fulfilled in his time. He'd seen Belshazzar's fall and the rise of Darius. He had seen God's judgment. But you know, as, as he continues to work his way through the scrolls, he comes a few chapters later to Jeremiah 29 verse 10. And it's at this point, Daniel's excitement, this old man reading the scrolls, begins to bubble over. He reads, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. How his heart leaped within his chest. Now before we go any further, it is important that we address the reason that God specified 70 years. I noted in our first study in Daniel how the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, along with the exile of the Jewish people, had been God's judgment on account of their disobedience. No question about it. I mean, all the way back at Mount Sinai, Leviticus 26. God had been straightforward 
that in response to their consistent rebellion, he would, quote, scatter them among the nations and draw out a sword after them, in turn leaving them, quote, their land desolate and their cities waste. Now, what's interesting about this Leviticus 26 passage, written so many years beforehand, is that God gets even more specific as to why he judged them by removing them from the land. You know, of all the ways that God could have judged them, why exile? Well, in verses 34 and 35 of Leviticus 26, God says that he would do this so that, quote, the land could enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land, and then the land shall enjoy its rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Like, understand, like, central to Israel's covenant relationship with God was this idea of the Sabbath rest. Like, the exercise of ceasing to work one day in seven, or allowing the land to rest once every seven years, was to be an expression of their faith. Their faith in God and their faith in God's provisions. Tragically, upon their arrival into the promised land, for a period of 490 years, the Jewish people had failed to ever allow the land to experience this Sabbath year. As such, Jeremiah, connecting the dots back to Leviticus 26, knew that the land was owed 70 years. As Daniel, this old man, is studying such things, he comes to the realization, wait a second, like once the land had laid fallow for 70 years, like once that had happened, the land got what it was owed, God would be open to their return. Like, like, not only is Daniel encouraged that their return was possible, but the timeline indicated that it was potentially imminent. Chronicling Daniel's revelation of this fact years later, Ezra echoes in 2 Chronicles 36. He says, Those who escaped from the sword of Nebuchadnezzar were carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, before we continue, I need to make a few additional observations about these opening verses. Like first, don't overlook the way that Daniel describes the book of Jeremiah. Look again, he refers to it as, quote, the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. Like, though Jeremiah had been the human voice, the words that Jeremiah spoke to the people were divine. While the prophet's mouth moved, it had actually been God speaking to Israel through Jeremiah. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul, he says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In the Greek, this word inspiration literally means the words in your Bible, the words we're reading this morning, are God-breathed. Though human instruments were clearly used to pen Scripture, never forget 
What makes your Bible both living and powerful is that it contains the words of God and not the ideas of man. Secondly, as Daniel is reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, he says that he came to understand what God would accomplish. Like, don't miss this. I know there are times when you come across a passage, prophetic or otherwise, that seems to be perplexing, complicated, even confusing. When that happens, take a breath and don't forget something important. Scripture exists to be understood. Like Daniel is grappling with real issues in real time. Issues that were a deep concern to him. His heart ached for his people. He wanted to know if God still had a plan for Israel. If the covenant remained. Or if they had forfeited their position in the earth through their rebellion and wickedness. And for answers to such concerns and questions. What did Daniel do? He came to the scriptures. That's what you and I should do. And in the end, Daniel came to know the will of God by reading the Word of God. Do you want to know the will of God? The will of God for your life? We'll dive into the Word of God. It's how God communicates to you. Daniel had pressing questions, but he came to understand what God would accomplish by digging into God's Word. Thirdly, there is no mistaking the fact that Daniel read and interpreted God's Word literally. Like Daniel believed that when God said 70 years, that God actually meant 70 years. I know, shocker, right? Like this will become more important when we get to the prophecy at the end of this chapter. But Daniel did not see 70 years as being symbolic of something other than 70 years, or worse still, allegorical. Daniel believed their exile would last for 70 years. Why? Because God said so. It's a good rule here. When the plain reading of a text makes plain sense, anything else is nonsense. Lastly, Daniel's motivating concern, the concern that caused him to dive deep into the Scriptures, centered specifically upon the Hebrew people and their covenantial relationship with God. Again, this will be helpful when we get to the 70 weeks prophecy, but Daniel is not concerned. He's not diving into the Scriptures because his heart aches for the the world empires or the Gentiles. No, 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 no. His heart grieves for the Jewish people, his people and their future. What would happen of Israel? What would happen of the holy city? To this point, Seven times in Daniel chapter 9, and only in Daniel chapter 9, the prophet will use the name Jehovah in reference to God. It's the only time he does it, and he does it seven times. Jehovah, the special name for the Lord given to the Hebrew people. Though Daniel understood what God had revealed in Scripture, from his perspective, two significant questions remain. First, okay, this is going to be 70 years. 70 years at a minimum. However, like, when did the 70 years actually start? When did it begin? 
While Daniel viewed this reference of 70 years as being literal, the challenge centered on the fact that the Hebrew people had been judged and exiled in three different waves spanning 18 years. In 605 BC, Daniel and a group of young men had been taken from Judea. Then in 957, a much larger group had been exiled. Finally, in 587, 10 years later, Jerusalem fell, finishing the job. Like 70 years is not a long time. But in Daniel's context, tacking on 18 additional years was hardly insignificant. Like, for example, if the 70-year clock began when Daniel was exiled, well, he'll likely make it, right? I mean, the third year of Darius would place him only three or four years away. That said, if 70 years began in 587, Daniel knew he didn't stand a chance of living long enough to see this incredible day. The second question that Daniel is left wrestling with as he studies the scripture boiled down to the fact, and a lot of people don't discuss this, but it boiled down to the fact that 70 years, while clear, prophetically was the minimum amount of time the Jewish people would live in exile. Like it's worth noting that some 200 years before this, during the ministry of Isaiah, God used the Assyrian Empire to judge the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Presently, in the third year of Darius, and still today, not one of these 10 northern tribes have ever returned to the land. Like while Judea could theoretically return once these 70 years in exile were completed, Daniel's left grappling like, would they? Just because they could didn't mean they would. Would God allow them? Like in the passages I referenced earlier, Leviticus 26 and Jeremiah 29, where God spoke of his judgment, you know, Daniel would have also read the following, which explains what happens next. Let, let me read you two sections. In Leviticus 26, when Daniel gets to verse 40, this is what he reads. After all of this calamity, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that, they, that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, because they despise my judgments, because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. Interesting. Jeremiah 29. I read for you verse 10. Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. That would have been very encouraging to Daniel. But then you get to verse 11. Probably a verse you have memorized. But God continues. He says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me, and you will search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. 
I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Now, look at verse 3. Daniel 3. Then, now this is in response to all of these things that he had learned in Scripture. Then, I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication, or prayer, more prayer, with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. He he dons the, the attire of mourning. See, Daniel not only understood what God's Word said, more importantly, he obeyed God's Word. Moved by the Scriptures, this elderly prophet immediately, humbly, gets to his knees before the Lord. And and as we'll see in in this prayer that follows, so much of it is directly influenced by the passages we just read. First, this idea behind the phrase, I set my face, it, it infers determination and direction. God's word had been crystal clear what was required if the people wanted to return to the promised land, right? They were to call upon the Lord and pray. They were to seek Him and search for Him with all of their hearts. Daniel knew they were to humble themselves before the Lord, to confess the iniquity, their iniquity and that of their fathers. They were to accept their guilt and acknowledge how they had been unfaithful. In spite of all the wicked things that they had done to warrant judgment, the Lord had made it clear that His thoughts towards them were of peace and not of evil, to give them a future and a hope. God was not done with Israel. He was their God, and they could still be His people. Now, exile had been necessary, but it didn't have to be a permanent position. God's grace remained. Daniel recognizes from the Scriptures that if they would seek the Lord, if they would confess their sin, if they would accept their guilt, God promised, promised, He would listen. If they would seek, He would be found by them. He would remember the covenant of their ancestors. He wouldn't break His covenant with them. In the end, God promised He was willing to bring them back from their captivity. Verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, this is an amazing prayer, He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him, and those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all of the people of the land. Notice, Daniel begins his prayer by affirming the righteous nature and goodness of God Most High. He says, you are a great and awesome God. You know, Jesus, in modeling a prayer for us, he would begin, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Daniel then adds, regarding those who love you and keep your commandments, God, you never cease to be merciful, and you're always faithful to keep your covenant. In the place of judgment, which is where Daniel is, he affirms that their predicament was not God's fault. 
God was not to blame. Instead, Daniel confesses the Hebrew people had no one to blame for their current situation but themselves. Look, look back at the language he uses. It's, it's amazing to me. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. We departed from your precepts and judgments. We did not heed the servants and the prophets who spoke in your name. Like Not only does Daniel acknowledge their sin was the sole reason they found themselves in exile, but Daniel makes zero excuses. In fact, he takes responsibility. Uh, amazingly, really, over and over and over again, Daniel, he uses the personal pronoun we. He doesn't say they. He includes himself. Daniel was without a question a noble man. But even in his 80s, he was keenly aware of his own insufficiencies. Daniel had been exiled from the land as well. Like to this point, I believe the worst tendency that can arise in the life of a Christian is to assume that you've arrived. <laughs> that you're now good enough. That your obedience and piety somehow warrants and precipitates God's continued favor and blessing. Such a person is in a very dangerous place because they've lost sight of their need of God's grace. Like always remember the closer and closer you get to the perfection of Jesus, the more and more aware you will be of your own inadequacies. You know, every prayer, the prayer of the saint, should begin by bringing you back to your need for the cross. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. As it is this day, to the men of, of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O oh Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princes, our, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us by His servants and, and prophets. Amazingly, in his confession, Daniel keeps reverting back to the essence of the issue, doesn't he? Like in their sin, the children of Israel had broken this covenantal, covenantal relationship with God. Like, it's not an accident that he uses to describe this, the language of marriage. Beyond sinning, beyond transgressing, he's like, we've been unfaithful. We've whored ourselves. We've played the adulterer. While the Lord was righteous, their behavior had been shameful. Twice, he says, to us belongs. We own shame of face. In response to God's forgiveness and mercy, they had stubbornly continued in their rebellion. They did not obey His voice. They refused to walk in His laws. So many different turn of phrases, right? One Bible teacher, he observed that Daniel refers to their sin using so many different phrases 
Because Daniel understood the depths of human depravity transcends human description and language. Verse 11, yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us. He's referring to Leviticus 26. Because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, again invoking Leviticus, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. What prayer? The one exhorted there in Jeremiah, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Keep in mind, as a teenager, Daniel had been ripped from his family and home. He'd been stripped of his Jewishness and castrated. Daniel has spent his entire life, some 65 to 70 years, serving one wicked king after another, one, after another in Babylon. Like at this point, as he's praying, the temple, Jerusalem lay in ruins. God's people are scattered across the globe. And yet, Daniel is still able to make just this most amazing declaration. Look at it again. He says, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does. It's astounding. Can you pray that prayer? Now he gets to his request with verse 16. He says, O oh Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Like, seriously, right? Like, what an awesome, incredible prayer. As Daniel finishes, like, you can hear his passion, his tears. Like, as he closes, Daniel, he gets all New Testament, doesn't he? Like, he bases his entire request for the people to be restored, not on their goodness, not on their merit. He bases his request on God's goodness, for God's glory, for God's name. Look again, verse 18. 
He says, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Daniel is a man who understood the grace of God. Verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer. Now the repetition implies emphasis. While he's praying, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, manifesting in the appearance of a man whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. And this is a reference to Daniel 8, verse 16. Gabriel, being caused to fly swiftly. Now, Hebrew word here doesn't mean that Gabriel flew. Angels don't have wings. What the the language is describing is the urgency by which he had been sent by God. Gabriel reached me, Daniel says, about the time of the evening offerings, so at sundown. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. (laughs) Did you catch what's going on? Like Daniel is having a Bible study in which God reveals the need for the nation to repent and pray and call upon his name if they wanted to return to the land at the conclusion of 70 years. Then moved by the revelation of God's word, Daniel drops to his knees and he petitions the Lord. He does what God's word said. God spoke. Daniel acts accordingly. He confesses their sin. He appeals to the grace of God to restore them. It would seem that what we have recorded was only part of what Daniel likely intended to pray. Why? Well, Daniel says while he was still speaking. So in the middle of his prayer. The angel Gabriel shows up and tells him what? (laughs) The very moment Daniel's heart was stirred to pray, God had sent him with an answer. That's awesome. Incredible. Like Christian, please never underestimate the power of prayer, nor underestimate God's willingness to respond to your requests. Gabriel then adds that from the perspective of the Most High, look at it again, Daniel was, quote, greatly beloved. (laughs) I should point out how astounding that statement really is in its context. Look, let's be honest. (laughs) Circumstantially, would you say Daniel has lived a great life or a tough life? Has he gone through some hardships? I'd say so. Like his life has been difficult, hasn't it? He'd been taken captive into a foreign land. He was forced to be a slave of a pagan king. He was robbed, stripped of the ability to marry or to have a family, kids. And yet, Gabriel affirms to Daniel that God greatly loved him. Friend, next time you allow 
a difficult circumstance that arises in your life, a tough one, to cause you to question the love of your heavenly Father. And doesn't that happen? Like, let's be real. Something happens in your life, tragedy strikes, difficulties emerge, the road gets rocky. And the first thing in our mind is, God, do you love me? God, do you care about me? Like, we assume that these circumstances must somehow be evidence of God's displeasure. Not so. The moment those thoughts in your mind, I want you to remember Daniel. You see, the truth is your circumstances have no correlation to God's great love for you. Now, for the sake of time, (laughs) we're going to have to stop here. I know. But I should add, in the verses that follows, God does more than answer Daniel's question. He does more than this. Like, like not only would Daniel live to see the people's return, which is astounding in and of itself, right? Daniel was wondering, eh, there's 70 years, um, but when does it start? There are three options. If it's the last one, I'm in trouble, right? God picked the earliest possible one. Not only is that revealed in this prophecy, but God goes beyond that by revealing to Daniel the specific day Jesus, the Messiah, would appear to Israel. There's no question that sin is destructive. God's people were in exile because of their sin. For this very reason, their rebellion. And yet, Daniel, Daniel recognizes The amazing reality that even when we experience judgment of sin, punishment of sin, consequences of sin, we still have access to God's grace. That even in exile, God's grace remains accessible. Like God, Daniel realizes he wanted to restore them. Like God deeply desired to bring them back to the land, the promised land. God wanted desperately to give his people a fresh start and a clean slate, even though they had messed it all up. And yet, Daniel also realizes for God's grace to manifest in their lives, confession and repentance of sin would be necessary. If you've blown it, And you find yourself in an exile of sorts, whatever that might look like. If you believe God is done with you because of what you've done, that you've caused irreparable damage to your life, that you've ruined your future, if you believe that you've likely run out of second chances, that the sins that you've committed now place you beyond God's forgiveness, or the possibility of restoration. My friend, I want you to be encouraged in Daniel's example recorded in this amazing chapter. There is hope. Yeah, it's true. You have to come to the point that you can blame no one but yourself. You can't blame God. You have to take ownership. And yet, take heart knowing that God's grace remains accessible 
Like God's heart towards you, even the screw up and the failure, the down and outer, God's heart's to forgive. Like God's in the business of restoring things that are broken. Like never forget, God sent his son Jesus not to condemn the world, a world in darkness, but to save. God's thoughts towards you. Again, Jeremiah 29, 11, a famous passage. The context is God is speaking to exiles who are there because of their sin and shame. To those people, he says, my thought towards you, I know this is tough, I know it's your fault, but my thoughts are of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Like the only thing needed for the floodgates of grace to be pulled back is for you, my friend, to fall to your knees, to come in prayer before the Lord, to confess your sin, to own it, and repent. And in that moment, like Daniel, I promise that God will send someone much better than even Gabriel. And that moment, God will send to you His Holy Spirit with a word. That word, Not only are you greatly loved, but God still has a wonderful plan for your life. It was the word God gave Daniel, and it's the word the Spirit of God is giving you this morning. God is not through with you at all. In fact, maybe He's just getting started. So Father, Lord, we just let that word settle into our hearts, the power of it.